Most of you probably on the way to church this morning were listening to David Allen Coe, country western singer back when, before Taylor Swift and Brad Paisley got a hold of it all. And a favorite song of David Allen Coe's for me is a song of pining away for recognition, a song of lament like the Psalms where you're not getting the credence and the applause and the recognition that you want. It's a song called, You Never Even Called Me By My Name. And at the end of this song where David Allen Coe has been misidentified time and time again, he, he says, a good friend of mine named Steve Goodman wrote that song. And he told me that it was the perfect country and western song. Well, I had a look at it. And I wrote my friend back and I told him he had not written the perfect country and western song because he hadn't said anything at all about mamas or trains or trucks or prison or getting drunk. Well, my friend Steve, he sat down and wrote another verse of that song and he sent it to me. And when I read it, I realized that my friend had, in fact, written the perfect country western song and I felt obliged to Included on this album. And the last verse, he says, goes like this here. And I shan't sing it for you, but I will report it for you. And the last verse of that song says, Well, I was drunk the day my mom got out of prison. And I went to pick her up in the rain. But before I could get to the station in my pickup truck. <laughs> She got run over by a darned old train. <laughs> we'll stop there, unless we digress. But you know, David Allen Coe is a perceptive man, if not a clean one, and he knew something. A country western song, an appropriate country western song, a valuable country western song that's worthy of the title, that fits in the genre will deal with certain important themes about heartbreak and family loyalty and substance abuse and incarceration. He knew that to have a country western song, there's something, certain things that had to be there, and if you don't have them, you don't got a country western song. And I would submit to you today as we continue listening in on Jesus, who is giving a sermon, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, He's taken position on this mountainside with all these disciples coming to him. People who have said, we're interested in what you have to say. We're eager for you to be influencing us. And so Jesus sees them. He sits down and he opens his mouth and he begins to talk to them. And he's just made a proclamation about what the kingdom of God is like. Who's blessed and it's a little bit shocking. It's the poor in spirit. It's people who have been characterized by a great deal of deprivation. You're hungering and you're thirsting for righteousness. You're mourning. But one day you'll be comforted. You're a peacemaker and you're a mercy giver. And he's talking in what might seem a different kind of way. And then he says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And we've addressed these themes. But he knows. 
He knows what folks are thinking. He knows that he hadn't preached a sermon. He hasn't even come close to being able to stand and say he's representing God or the coming of God's reign on the earth that they've been looking forward to until he says something about the law of God. He doesn't have a perfect sermon. He doesn't have a representation of what God wants until he says, here's where I stand in relation to the Old Testament, as we would call it. They would call it the Scriptures. They would call it the law and the prophets. He knows what people are thinking. He knows that the Pharisees and the scribes are going to be curious about this. Where do you stand with relation to the laws that Moses gave the people of God? The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, if you've learned your books of the Bible, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What's your take on these? Are you coming up with something new? Do you believe these things like we do? What's your take on the prophets? You know, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And the minor ones as well, like Habakkuk and Obadiah and Micah and Nahum and such. Where do you stand when it comes to the Scriptures? Do you teach them? Are you against them? Are you coming up with something new? Unlike us, these are folks who would be suspicious of novelty. We think that only novel things, that to be good, something must be novel. But a first century Jewish person would not think that at all. Novel things are to be held in suspicion. And so Jesus who knows what we think, says, here's what not to think. Here's what's not to think. He says to the people listening, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do not think that I'm a wrecking ball who is somehow here to demolish what God has erected. The edifice that God has built. Do not think that I'm here to raise the thing. Do not think this. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to live them out. I have come to fulfill them. I have come to to fill in the spaces and to magnify its meaning. I have come not to abolish, he says, but to fulfill them. And in doing this, he says this. I know what you're thinking. And I'm standing right smack dab in the middle of all that God has ever been doing. Now, for us, as we listen to this, as we listen to Jesus saying, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And he says, in fact, until heaven and earth disappear, which is not going to happen until the end of the age. That's the whole idea. This law is not going to be broken until everything that God intends is accomplished. There's not one apostrophe, not one semicolon, not one period or question mark that's going to fall out from God's scriptures. Every single part is going to stand forever. And I'm the fulfillment of it, he says. Now, we're the kind of folks who live in a time 
where people start to wonder. And they say questions like this, because this is how this passage might relate to us. They say things like us to Christians. We're, we're people who have been formed heavily by the New Testament. And they'll say things like this, you Christians, whenever we make a pronouncement about some ethical issue, some social issue, and we appeal to the Bible as if that means something. God says this is how it ought to be. And the accuser will be something like this. You people are just inconsistent. You pick and choose what you like. Oh, you stand against gay marriage. You say God's against homosexuality, but then why do you... How come you don't stone adulteresses? How come you don't stone stubborn children? Doesn't the Bible say to do that? Now, how come you will wear wool and cotton in the same material? The Bible says you better not do that. How come you guys don't wash the way they say? How come you eat shellfish? Doesn't the Bible say you shouldn't eat shellfish? You're inconsistent. You pick and choose. You think you stand against the things you don't like. You permit the things that you don't care about. Jesus has something to say to that. He says, I am the fulfillment of all these things. And it's important to see him as the fulfillment of this. He says this kind of thing all over the Bible. In one place, he says to the Pharisees and to the scribes who he is comparing righteousness to, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that by them you have life. But I tell you, the scriptures are about me. And you refuse to come to me. He tells those forlorn, weary travelers on the day of resurrection, a resurrection they didn't know about as they walk to Emmaus. When he says, what are you cats chatting about? They said, where have you been, dude? You got no CNN? You got no Fox News? You haven't heard about what's happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus begins this process of talking to them and eventually opening their eyes and explaining to them through all the law and the prophets that all the scriptures are about him. you got to start to see that. If you want to figure out how do we consistently look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, one of the things you've got to realize is that Jesus is emphatic. That this is not a hodgepodge mismatch. Mismatch? Mishmash? Is that the word? This is not some collage of variously collected ethical sayings and weird rules that don't connect to anything. Jesus is emphatic that they all have to do with him, that he's the fulfillment of it. In fact, one way you could think of this as you, have you seen any of you seen these 3D printers? I haven't. I've read about them and I've had cool young software people tell me about them. And I even read an article about Matt Brown where he and the David Cook, who I know, went to check out these 3D printers I think the idea of a 3D printer is that you got this image and it prints out a thing. Not just a piece of paper, not something flat and two-dimensional, something with shape and size and form. It's going to revolutionize design. It's going to revolutionize manufacturing. It's pretty cool. I guess you lose your wedding ring, you hit print, and there you got one. It may not work that way, but who knows what the applications are. But in a very real way, you could say that in the Old Testament, that everything that's going on there is ultimately pointing towards this Savior who's the 3D representation. It's, it's the law that's walked off the page. 
If you're trying to say, we've got this vision statement. See, churches, when churches have vision statements, until they ever start to do anything, everybody agrees. It's the moment that you start to decide something that everybody says, you're not keeping the vision. But so long as we're up here in ethereal notions, we can think we're all talking about the same thing. But as soon as you make a decision and you embody it, then you start to disagree. Jesus walked off the page. And if you were going to figure out what, what would the law look like if it could breathe? What would the law of God and the intentions of God look like if it got compressed and built into one person? And Jesus' answer is it would look like me. It would look like me. Walked off the page. I'm the 3D representation and I'm the filling up of all that the law was about. This is a season of the year where people are filling up if they, I don't know, maybe they're not. But you think about an old swimming pool. Okay, let's think about an old swimming pool for a second. Now, an old swimming pool is a hazard if it's not got water in it. It's an intoxicating allurement for a teenage boy who likes to skateboard. It's a good place to crack open your skull and do cool skate tricks. But that's not what it's for. It's the kind of thing you can fall into. It's the kind of thing you can break your noggin on. Until it gets filled up. Until water gets in there. And all of a sudden you've got the thing that it was made to be. Oh! It's a cavernous place of refreshment filled with life-giving water. That's what a pool is. Unless you're allergic to chlorine. And Jesus is saying, I am the fill-up. I am the, the picture of all that's ever been talked about. I'm the thing it's talking about. I'm the one it's talking about. So let's go back for a second. That's charge of inconsistency. It's leveled against us sometime. And Tim Keller wrote an amazing article about this, and we'll put it on the website so you can read it yourself. But it goes a little something like this. He says, I always get so tired. I always get so tired of pundits and skeptics and people that I've talked to leveling this charge of inconsistency about Christians, I wish they would, they would think about this or at least talk to somebody who knows something about it. When they say you pronounce against homosexuality and then you, you don't say anything about the, all the washing requirements and you, still don't, you don't sacrifice lambs in your worship services and you, you don't kill people when they violate the law. And he says, but you know, there's so much about the Old Testament as you read the New that you realize that so many of these ceremonies, so many of these sacrifices, so many of these rules about being clean and not mixing certain kinds of fabric and staying away from certain kinds of food, these food are clean, these food are unclean. It's not because God is a secret backer of green life. Because God's trying to teach His people, if you want to have anything to do with Him, you've got to get clean. If you want to have anything to do with the holy, transcendent, and righteous one, there's got to be something done about your foulness, about your stench. And He's trying to teach His people, we can't come before God unless we're clean. We can't get in God's presence unless the filth has been removed. And so there's washings. And so there's rules about that's clean, that's unclean. He's training them. 
He's training them like little children to know, I've got to be clean, I've got to be clean, I've got to be clean. The problem is, none of those things make you clean. I can't come empty-handed before God, I've got to make a sacrifice. If there's sin, there has to be death. Daddy, why are we, why'd you cut that lamb's throat? Because, son, whenever there's sin, God requires death as a penalty payment for it. That lamb died, so we won't. And so, so many of these ceremonies, so many of these laws about clean and unclean and not mixing this and that and killing this and that, Jesus comes along and says, all of those If you want to be consistent, you can't do those anymore because I fulfill those. I fulfill the law and the prophets. I am the one who makes you clean. Remember what he told Peter? Remember what he told Peter when he was going to wash the gunk off his feet? All authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Jesus. So after supper, he took off his outer cloak and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he began to wipe and wash his disciples' feet. And Peter, when he came to him, said, No! Don't touch my feet. You're not going to wash me. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, unless I clean you up, you can't be clean. And Peter says, then everything. I want to shower. I want to soak in your cleanness. Get me all the way clean. Not just my feet, my head, and my body too. And Jesus says, if you've already been washed, if you've already bathed, you just need to have your feet clean. And you are already clean. See, Jesus is a launderer and he cleans people. And that's part of this fulfillment that he does. The whole book of Hebrews is about this. You don't need to sacrifice anymore because Jesus has been the sacrifice once for all. He's fulfilling what the Old Testament was pointing to. And so if you don't believe... If you don't believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of these law and these prophecies, then you won't understand that. Well, what about all those rules about you're supposed to punish people if they do wrong? Well, in the Old Testament, the state and the church were the same thing. They're all locked up together. It was a theocracy. God's man was on the throne. They were ruled by God's rules. In Israel, you did not hold truths to be self-evident. You held truths to be God-given. You didn't figure out what it's supposed to be. God revealed it to you. And so in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, Israel and the state, they're the same thing. And so there's sin. It has to be punished. There are crimes of the state. The punishment is on the state's hands because it's the same thing. But we get to the New Testament. Jesus who's the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Jesus comes along and he says, I am building a different kind of thing altogether. And now Jesus has this multinational conglomeration of human lives that have been swept up in him. And they're not just located in one kind of government. They're in tyrannical regimes. They're in democracies. They're in republics. And oligarchies, they're all over the world. And they're all people who have come under his spiritual leadership. They've said, you're the king and we're going to listen to you. And so now the church is different than the state. 
So when you sin, we exhort you. We don't beat you up. We don't have that authority. If you don't believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things, then they'll all just seem like mismatch. They'll all just seem like they're somehow loosely fit together in, in, in an incoherent kind of way. And when it comes to ethical kinds of things, the kinds of ways that we live, you know what happens? The kinds of things that we get hung up on. Man. God has cared about the same kinds of ways of living in the old covenant as he does in the new. God cared about poor people and loving the immigrant and the alien and being kind to strangers in the Old Testament just like he does in the New Testament. He cared about ethical purity and sexual fidelity. You don't have sex with somebody that's not your wife if you're a husband. And you don't have sex with somebody that's not your husband if you're a wife. That's the rule in the Old Testament. That's his intention restated many times in the New. The way of worship changes, but God's intention for humanity does not. So Jesus, when he says, do not think that I've come to abolish these things, he's also saying to us as modern people, as we overhear an eavesdrop, he's saying, do not think as modern people do, even Christians do, that somehow or another in the Old Testament, God was a cantankerous, crotchety old man who hated kids. And when they came in his yard, he got out the shotgun and went, get out of the yard, kids. And if your ball happened to roll in his yard, you never saw that thing again. But then, in the New Testament, suddenly, God discovered not only Prozac, but recreational marijuana use. And so he mellowed out, dude. He chillaxed. And now he just walks around saying, love, man. And Jesus is saying, please don't do that to us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, don't do that to us. We don't change. The people who say God was mean in the Old Testament and nice in the New, they never read either. They violate the first rule of criticism. Wendell Berry says when, in one of his essays, when someone's criticizing something, he says they violate the first rule of criticism. criticism. In order to criticize someone's book, you have to read it first. You have to read something before you can even know what it says. If you read the Old Testament, here's what you'll discover. Sometimes God seems mean, and sometimes he seems awfully nice. And if you read the New Testament, sometimes you'll think, Jesus seems awfully mean sometimes, and sometimes he seems awfully nice. And you realize, oh, yeah, because that's what, that's what loving people do. When you love someone fiercely, when you're opposed to their ruin, when you're standing up against everything that would decimate them, you are sometimes fierce and strenuous because you do not want people you love to be destroyed by them reinventing the intentions for humanity. And if you love them, you'll sometimes get angry. And when they're, when they're busted up, when they realize they've been in their own dark ages and they come to you, you'll throw your arms around them. You'll welcome them. You'll be tender with them. Because that's your intention all along. You want to remake folks. 
You care about what the planet's going to be. God's always cared about that. That's what, why he picked Israel. That's why he pointed everything to Jesus. That's why he sent Jesus, because he cares that the world not go down the tube. That the world not go down the drain. Do not think that Jesus is somehow standing against everything in the Old Testament. He is not at all. And do not think that righteousness does not matter to him, even though he be so much an advocate for love, as if these are somehow against one another. He says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, he's in the middle of a sermon. He's going to talk to us about retaliation. He's going to talk to us about adultery. He's going to talk to us about divorce. He's going to talk to us about taking oaths. He's going to talk to us about loving enemies. And he's saying, don't think I don't care about righteousness. If you listen to my words and you put them into practice and you commend them to others, God will think that's fantastic. And if you ignore my words and you don't put them into practice, then that's going to go badly for you. And he says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when those people sitting on that mountain heard that, it's likely that their jaws would have dropped a little bit. What? If our righteousness doesn't exceed? If we don't get a higher grade than the Pharisees and the scribes, aren't they straight-A students in righteousness? Aren't they your religious professionals who are doing it all right? And I got to thinking about this. What is he talking about? What is he saying? It must surpass the righteousness of them. And I look in other places in the Gospels. Matthew 23, if you want to look it up later, where Jesus is pronouncing woe, or in John when he's talking to these Pharisees who are against him. You know one of the things they say? One of the things he says to them? When they're opposing him and they're giving him all kinds of grief, he says, I know you and you do not have the love of God in your hearts. So that's one of the things that happens. If you have a a sham righteousness, if you have a faux righteousness, then you might find yourself being awfully good, doing it just right. But inside, it's not endearing your heart to God. It's you're doing it to keep him off your back. Imagine you're an employee at a business. You've been tardy a few times. You've lost a client. You're never calling people back in a responsible and efficient way. And your boss comes to you one day and says, I'm sorry to tell you, uh, little Jimmy, let's just say they call you little Jimmy. I'm sorry to tell you, but you're on probation. And we're going to be watching you. If you are late again, if you mess up again, you're out. Now let's say little Jimmy responds to this. Says, oh gosh, I've got to do better. I've got to do better. So little Jimmy's there on time. And little Jimmy is trying as hard as he can. He calls everybody back the way he's supposed to. He's supposed to be, he's very diligent. He's very responsive to the boss. But inside, he's a nervous wreck. And inside, he is growing daily in his resentment toward his boss. 
He's doing everything right. And he's all wrong. He hates his boss because his boss can't be pleased. He hates his boss because his boss has given him an ultimatum. Do it right or you're out. Now think of the difference. Think of the difference in a house. If you were a child, if you grew up in a house with relatively good parents that you liked, and you knew, even if you screwed up, you weren't going to be kicked out. Your parents weren't going to say, I'm sorry, you failed the test. There's no supper for you this month. You did what? You disobeyed me? You didn't clean your room? You don't get to have young blood as your name anymore. You're out on the streets. No, because in good homes, you know what children sometimes want to do? They think, I'm not as motivated by the fear of a spanking as I am by your displeasure. I don't want my mama to be upset with me. And I do, conversely, want her to be happy with me. And you think she can be. So you do stuff for her. You listen to your daddy sometimes because, well, you want to please him. The Pharisees had not the love of God in their hearts, says Jesus. In fact, their righteousness was the kind of thing they were doing maybe to get God off their back. And that might describe some of us today. Or at least we can get tricked in it. And maybe if we're good enough, he'll leave us alone. That's the exact opposite intention. That's not what Jesus is up to. Jesus wants you to think about this idea that the laws of God, the righteousness that is required of you, is like this. On the one hand, it's like this mirror. And this is the way we've always thought of this. This is the way the Apostle Paul talks about it. This law of God is like this mirror. And I was talking to an older man the other day. I heard him talking to my father. And I thought, this is a pretty good description because most of you in here, except for the young ones, some of you young ones, you walk by a mirror and you're like, hey, hey, good looking. You think you look good. But there's like 72% of you in here who hate mirrors because you don't like what it depicts. Like, what's wrong with me? And I heard a man say, now when I get out of the shower, I never look at a mirror because the mirror don't lie. And some of you know what that's like. I don't want to look in a mirror. I don't want to see what everybody else sees all the time. I can't bear that reality. And there's a very real sense in which the laws of God, the requirements of God, they're very steep and they're very revealing. And it's a very harsh light. And you're supposed to look at it and you're supposed to go, oh my gosh, is that what I really look like? And then you get to know what the apostle said. That's what the law was for. One of the things it's for is to find this righteousness to which the law and the prophets testify, a righteousness that is by faith, that you say to Jesus, Jesus, I love you and I can't do this. I failed you. I've got to come clean. Like Karen said, I've been in the dark ages. Would you remake me? And Jesus says, absolutely. Because that's what the whole Old Testament's about. Me coming to remake and then once you're once you're clothed in his righteousness once you receive this gift of him you all of a sudden have this completely different relationship to his laws to his commands now they're not something you have to keep in order for him to 
not kick you out. There's something you want to do because you want to please Him. And some of you are in here saying, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I want to please Him. And that, most of you who are saying that do want to. The fact that you sometimes feel sad or upset or scared that you've been displeasing to God, that means you want to please Him. The fact that you sometimes feel conflict inside and say, I want to obey you, Jesus. But then there's this secondary voice inside that says, uh, can we please rethink this situation? If you do what he says, something bad is going to happen to you. If you do what he says, then that's not going to work out for you. If you have that conflict, congratulations. That means you belong to him. That means your righteousness is exceeding that of the Pharisees because you have been invaded by heaven and you want to please God, but there's some part of you that says, I'm not so sure. That doesn't happen to people who aren't Christians, by the way. They don't have the conflict. They don't have the conflict. They don't get the conflict. But you do. The hymn writer had it right. To see the law by Christ fulfilled. To hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Don't think that Jesus is a wrecking ball trying to destroy everything that came before. Think that Jesus has come here to remake you, to show you what it's like to be human. And has said, I am committed now until all is accomplished to make it happen. Trust Him. You won't be kicked out. Receive the righteousness that comes through faith alone and then be reoriented to this harsh mirror of the law and say, now the mirror's, the law's not a mirror, it's a picture. It's a picture that I aspire to. It's a picture of Jesus saying, this is what I want to make you like. Somebody who loves God so much and forgets about himself so much. Somebody who is just as eager to serve and give and meet the needs of others as you are to have your own needs met. This is the picture I have for you. A lovely one to make you like my son. Trust him. Do not think that he is opposed to what God's been doing. He's the picture of what God's doing. Amen.